Second Samuel chapter six, verses one through twenty three. The topic we're going to find there is this. David builds a cart to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, but ends up leaving it at the house of Obed-Edom. And so the title of our message is I left my cart in Obed-Edom's. So let's have a word of prayer and uh, see what the Lord would say to us. Well, he did. But anyway, (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. We always come to it with a great joy and anticipation, uh, knowing, Lord, that it's how you communicate with us by your spirit. It's as if we're having a conversation with you right now, Lord, with this living uh, word. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us and that we would see you revealed here and that everything, Lord, that we talk about would be of grace and of mercy It would be of love and forgiveness because that's what you uh, have given us, Lord, uh, those principles to live by and that heart, Lord, to share. And so uh, guide us through these verses, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Uh, Anyway, uh, many of you have been involved in the argument, uh, the worship argument. Uh, Do we sing traditional hymns? Or should we sing contemporary choruses? And the the debate, if you haven't debated that with anybody, you know that it, it just rages on with no end in sight. The solution to that debate, and many others like it in terms of worship, is this. It has to do with your clothing. Now, I'm not talking about your physical clothing. That's a whole other debate that I don't want to get into. I'm talking about what we might say is your spiritual clothing. Regardless hymns or choruses, what are you really wearing spiritually as you approach God in your worship or as you walk with God in your daily life, worshiping him on a moment by moment basis? We have in our text an illustration of two types of clothing that we might put on as we seek to worship the Lord. King David plans and then participates in two worship services involving bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place in the tabernacle. In each case, he wears different clothing to a very different result. In the first place, he was clothed as the king. The worship service was a disaster. It's been called killer worship. Uh, But not in a good sense. We'll see that a man died as they were coming along with the ark. In the second case, he took off his kingly attire and he dressed as a common priest. This worship service ended blessedly with the ark back in its place and all Israel being prospered materially. David's physical attire illustrates two types of spiritual clothing we can put on when we're in the presence of God, whether we're in a worship service or whether we're offering our lives each day as worship to the Lord. In the first service, we see David clothed with pride. In the second service, David was clothed with humility. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, clothe yourself with pride and you're not really worshiping the Lord Number two, clothe yourself with humility and you'll be fully worshiping the Lord. So uh, let's take a look at verses 1 through 10 and talk a little bit about pride as a cloak that we wear. Now, I want to make an important point as we begin. David did not set out to promote himself or to clothe himself with pride. He was absolutely sincere in his desire to worship the Lord. He was trying to do the right thing. It's just that he went about it the wrong way we'll see that his entire plan for transporting the ark speaks of man's wisdom, of human effort, of worldly pomp. 
You and I don't set out to promote self or to clothe ourselves with pride. We are sincere in our desire to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, we can come clothed with pride that speaks of our own effort rather than God's grace. We, too, can go about trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. And this is a more important point than you realize because we have a tendency as Christians, or at least I do, when I approach a, a study like this and I hear, well, David was, you know, had pride. And then I think, okay, well, Lord, right now I just prayed and I'm in church and everything's fine. I don't have that kind of pride. I struggle with pride, but I don't have that right now. So I'm clean from this. So now I can switch over and just play Angry Birds on my iPhone. I don't need to follow the study anymore. You know, this doesn't apply to me. But it does because David, there's nothing about David that suggests that he was a proud, inflated individual. He really was trying to do the right thing. It just shows us how easy it is to attempt to do the right thing for God in the completely wrong way if we're not really grounded uh, in certain areas. And so pay attention. Now, verse 1. David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've got a pretty good idea of what the ark actually looked like. The ark was a rectangular chest, two feet, three inches wide, three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches high. It was made of acacia wood that was overlaid inside and out with pure gold. The lid of the ark, featuring two cherubim angels with their wings touching in the center, was called the mercy seat. It was considered a separate piece of furniture, but usually when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, we mean both of those items, the Ark itself and the lid, the mercy seat. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. It was there at the Ark between the cherubim inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that God manifested his presence to the Israelites. His glory literally dwelt there among his people. The ark hadn't been in the tabernacle for many decades. The Philistines captured it. They took the ark to several places in their country, but at each place misfortune befell them. After seven months, they sent it back to the Israelites. It eventually ended up at a place called Kirjath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab, and that's where we pick up our story in verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. I've got to believe that this cart was a thing of beauty. It would have been crafted especially for this occasion. Uzzah and Ahio uh, were, uh, you know, the sons there. The ark had been with them, and so they were kind of an honor guard. Uh, It's kind of, you know, we're transferring it from this house to the tabernacle. And so it's like a, you know, symbolic transfer and all this. And I'm sure they're excited about this. Verse four, they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And a heel went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood on harps, on stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. Everybody asked me after first service what a sistrum is, uh, and so I googled it. Uh, it is a type of percussion instrument that you shake around. Uh, and so, uh, you know, 
you've probably seen these before, and uh, we're going to introduce one next week. You know, I'm going to learn how to play the sistrum, and uh, I'll be up here. But anyway, so now, can you picture the excitement in this crowd? This is the Super Bowl of worship. A huge crowd of over 30,000, the choicest men, all new instruments, music that was, I would say, undoubtedly written by David, especially for this occasion. The best worship voices in the land and a whole new way of transporting the ark. It would have required months of planning, lots of money invested, rehearsals around the clock, and all of it really was for God. I mean, so this just didn't happen. David didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, let's go get the ark and bring it back. No, this they built a cart and he found, I mean, you know, he's the king, but it takes a while to get together 30,000 men. And and as far as the worship service itself, I mean, David was, a you know, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He invented musical instruments and he wrote music. I mean, this was going to be something special. And so this was round-the-clock preparation. The date was set and then everything. It's kind of like the Rose Parade or something. How many of you watch the Rose Parade on New Year's Day, you know? And, and I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that go into all of those floats and, and people working round-the-clock because that's going to happen. It's going to happen on the morning of January 1st, no, whether you're ready or not. And so this is a huge thing. I think sometimes we think in terms of these people like they were almost cavemen. Get ark, you know, and and a few people went and got the ark. This is like having a massive harvest crusade at Anaheim Stadium. I mean, this goes on for a long time and and it's a big thing. And so in verse six, when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error. He died there by the ark of God. What a buzz killer that is. I mean, just when you're at the height of excitement here, everything's kind of clicking along. This guy reaches out and touches the ark and God makes it obvious that he's the one who killed him. God let it be known that he was not pleased at all with their efforts. Why not? Well, I see Uzzah's actions in reaching out to steady the ark as somewhat symbolic. It represented in one moment, in one action, everything that was wrong about this procession. It was man's attempt to carry God along, to help God out, rather than submitting to God by following his simple instructions about carrying the ark. In the case of transporting the ark, God had clearly described his way of doing it. According to Moses in the book of Exodus, the ark was to be carried only by Levites who first sanctified themselves and then bore the ark on their shoulders by poles that were fitted through the rings that were in it. And so God gave the instruction for building the ark and he said, this is who is to carry it and this is how it is to be carried very simple, a very simple thing. God didn't ask them to do anything difficult. didn't ask them to take the ark apart and, you know, to carry it in different portions. Or anything. He just said, look, only the Levites carry it, only after they're consecrated, with poles through the sides on their shoulders. Let's do that. If you step back from this procession that David planned, you see man and not God. All of David's preparations obscured the ark. You didn't see the ark so much as you saw lots of human effort surrounding it. 
It, it was almost hidden. It, from a distance, if you didn't know what was going on, you probably wouldn't know that they were transporting the ark and that the glory of God was coming back to the tabernacle. You would just see a magnificent uh, uh, you know, ceremony. No matter David's intentions, this was man on display. This was pride. And so you see how subtle it is because David, he's at first, he's even wounded by it because he doesn't understand what's happened. He really thinks he's doing the right thing the right way. It snuck up on David at a time when his intentions were good. But his ideas and his plans and those of the others around him, they ignored God's word in favor of methods that they must have thought were an improvement. I mean, they had the book of Exodus. It wasn't a, a, a secret. They must have thought they were improving on transporting the ark. And so verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Anger, fear, and failure were the results of David's worship service. You might say that worshiping God wasn't working for him. Maybe you feel that worshiping God isn't working for you. You feel anger, not necessarily at God, but just in general, or fear, or you're experiencing failure in your walk with the Lord. It could be, it just might be, that you're going about things your way obscuring the presence of God. The answer is to simplify. Go to the Word, find out what you ought to be doing, and then do it. God has clearly described His way of doing things, especially in the major important areas of our lives, like at home and in the church and out in society. Too often, we try to go beyond the simplicity of His instruction in those areas, and we get ourselves uh, in difficulty. Let me give you an example. It's, it's the best example I can give. I would point to Christians who would rather embrace the psychological theories of godless men rather than sticking with the simplicity of what we might call soul care as revealed in the Word of God. And so the situation, uh, you know, maybe somebody comes to you or they come into the church and they're looking for, we, you know, we call it counseling, but it's really discipleship where you're trying to get people to read God's word and to do what God's word says. But they come in and they say, hey, you know, my marriage isn't working. I'm having this trouble at work, whatever it might be. And so, you know, if you're a, if you're a good student of God's word, you begin with the basics and you say, well, are you, you know, are you doing all the basic things that Christians do? Do you have a devotional life? Are you reading God's word? Are you praying to the Lord? Are you sharing your faith with others? Are you involved, really involved in a local fellowship? Do you, uh, do you give to that fellowship? Are you fasting? And you might add some other basic Christian disciplines. And a lot of times... With every, with real sincerity, without trying to be uh, deceptive or, you know, without putting a trip on people, a lot of times you do, yes, I've done all those things and I'm doing them. Oh, well, that's not working. So what else is there out there that we can find? Well, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can find because people are building carts like crazy. And so there's a cart. Uh, it's called psychology. It's a, the godless philosophy of men like Sigmund Freud and uh, Abraham Maslow and Carl Jung and B.F. Skinner. 
I mean, really godless guys. I mean, guys that, that had, they hated God. And so they build this theory, this cart, and then people say, now, you know, this isn't working. All these Christian disciplines, they are not working. So maybe I can put that on this cart and be carried along. And, and so uh, more often than not now, when uh, people who are not part of our church call and they want counseling, they want to know if we have a professional counseling. Do, have you been to school? To, are you trained as a professional i.e. worldly counselor and we say no and then they don't want to talk to us and, and so that and that's fine that's uh, fine uh, but this is the this is a problem because what people tend to do is they look at their problem and they say I have a problem and God's solution is way too simple I've been doing it and it's not working I need a complex solution and usually if you want to stay in the realm of psychoanalysis and psychology usually it's a feel-good solution because you've got somebody for as long as your insurance holds out who will talk to you every week and they occasionally they'll say a tough thing to you but eventually they'll agree with you and when you get to the point where you say I've tried everything in my marriage and it just doesn't work they'll say all right we'll get a divorce wow thank you and or something like that and 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 what we're talking about this morning is, is that you want to just get back to basics. The rich young ruler, I've been using him a lot as an illustration, but it works here. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he, basically he said to Jesus, Jesus, there's something missing in my life. I want to follow you. Uh, what is it? And Jesus quizzed him. And, and this guy said, I have done everything. I've kept the law from a youth. I've done it all. I've, I'm the guy, but I still, what is it? I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, in your case, there's one thing. Jesus, given the word of knowledge there by his father in heaven, he says, in your case, you need to sell everything you own because that's an idol in your life. Oh, wait a minute. Time out. I own a lot of stuff. I can't do that. And he went away sorrowful. And so that's the thing. Uh, the thing that we need to realize about the Lord, you're not always going to get an immediate solution to your problem. I love immediate solutions, don't you? I'm hungry. I get an immediate solution. I go to Taco Bell. I don't know if it's a solution so much as, you know, but uh, anyway, or wherever you want to go. Immediate solution, you know. Or I could spend all day cooking, but then I'm hungry all day. I mean, so, you know, the thing is, we want immediate solutions. And, we, and, and, you know, you're more complicated than that. God's solutions are simple, but you're pretty complicated. There's parts of your life you don't even understand. But God does. He knows them. And he's working in you and completing that good work that he's begun in you. And little by little, chipping off a little here, adding a little there. And, and so some things take time and patience and walking by faith. But what we don't want to do is build carts. And, and that's what we love to do. We want to build some cart, some new thing that we can try. And it, it might almost seem successful for a time because God graciously he doesn't kill people like he used to he you know he reached out because this is written for our example so we could see how serious this is Christians who get involved in some of these things God doesn't strike them dead but there's a deadness to their lives because they're not really you know on fire for God they're all wrapped up in these other things the, the Philistines when they stole the cart 
you know, then they sent it back to Israel on, or they sold the ark, they sent it back to Israel on a cart. And so maybe David's thinking, well, you know, they put it on a cart and God didn't kill them. And so maybe we can build a better cart, a spiritual cart. And, and this is what we do. We are looking for things in the world because we don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, in the sufficiency of Christ, in the sufficiency of the Christian life. And the world, one of the strategies, I believe, of the world and of the devil is to tell you that what you have in your lap, that Bible, is not enough in a modern world. That if Paul the Apostle knew what B.F. Skinner knew, he would have sent you to psychoanalysis. I mean, after all, these guys are scientists. They work with rats. I got totally into, when I was at the University of California, Riverside, we're going to go over time this morning, I'm just warning you. But uh, when I was at UCR, we had a colony of macaque monkeys. And and, uh, we used to just go and sit there and study the behavior of macaque monkeys because of, it was a, you know, behavioral psychology. It's like, this is how monkeys act. I'm related to monkeys somewhere. Uh, and so, therefore, I can learn about human behavior from watching monkeys. And uh, you know what I learned about? I learned monkeys are weird. That's what I learned. <laughs> if I'm related to a monkey, we're all in trouble. But anyway, so that's the thing. And so, we, you know, it sounds scientific. It's got data and research. But what we're really saying is Jesus doesn't know what's wrong with you. And he can't help you unless you add this other thing that he didn't know about. But now we do, thank goodness, for modern science and, and for its help. So anyway, back into, if I can find my place now. You know that expression, it's my way or the highway? We could modify it as if God was saying, my way is the highway, meaning the higher way, the way of the Spirit. What is that way? Well, the Bible encourages us to clothe ourselves with humility. If we're in pride, if this is all pride looking to man's ways, then we want the opposite. We want humility. The Apostle Peter said, be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a choice we make. It assumes we're clothed with pride and need to daily pursue humility. But it also assumes that it's something we can do. God never asks you to do something you can't do. And so in verses 11 through 23, clothe yourself with humility. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. The ark was a blessing. God wanted to bless his people. David simply needed to do things God's way. If you read the parallel account of this in Chronicles, you find that God, David figured out from Exodus how to carry the ark, and then he brought it back the right way. And so verse 13, And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Likely this occurred only once after the first six paces and not every six paces, otherwise they might still be there. Uh, and so, but this was, this was, he's following the prescription for bringing the ark back. Now, verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. 
There's a terrible movie called King David starring Richard Gere. I was going to ask how many of you have seen it, but then you'd have to repent. Uh, and I don't want to bring that condemnation on you. Uh, in this scene, I don't know how I know this, but he strips down. <laughs> hey, I was a young Christian and it's King David. All right. I mean, wow, they're making Bible movies. In this scene, he strips down to his underwear and dances like a drunken man staggering along ahead of the ark. David was not in his underwear, and I'll bet he was a great dancer. Don't you think of David as a great dancer? The Fred Astaire of his day? Singing with the ark. Anyway, uh, David, now here's what's happening here, though. Here's the thing to notice. David took off his kingly attire... And he dressed like a common priest. This is a huge difference from the first worship service. In the first service, he's the king. 30,000 men. Instruments like crazy. All the modern singers. Everything's clicking. Here, he dresses like a common priest. Well, who else do we know that, in a sense, took off his kingly garments to function as a priest? Jesus left heaven. He laid aside his rights to deity And as the God-man became and functioned as our great high priest. David's very actions are a powerful outward representation of the humility of Jesus Christ and therefore the humility we, his followers, ought to clothe ourselves with. I mean, if you want an outward illustration of what it means to humble yourself, you're the king, taking all that off, no crown, no outward God. I'm going to dress just like you. No one will know the difference between us. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord. Because when it comes to the Lord, I might be the king, but we are all just worshipers. And we're all in this together. Skip verse 16 for a moment. Verse 17, so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed among the people their uh, version of breakfast burritos. Uh, Well, I mean, how excited would you get this morning about a raisin cake? Show of hands. Maybe some of you like raisins. But anyway, quite a different result. Everyone in Israel was blessed. And it was signified by the giving of material uh, blessing of food to them. Well, not quite everyone was blessed. Look at verse 16 now. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. I can't help but notice that Michael was at home looking through a window. She had no desire to be at this worship service, even though it was arguably the most important worship service of that age. The ark was coming back to the tabernacle in the city of David that David had conquered from the Jebusites that hadn't happened for centuries and he was the rightful king that God had anointed who had united Israel. This is huge. This is a big thing. I mean, this is a really big thing that you can't... Schools closed. Uh, the government buildings were closed. And nobody worked this. This was what was happening in Jerusalem that day. And Michael said, yeah, I'll pass. Why? Well, we'll see in a moment. Verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
had been given to David as his first wife way back when. Uh, And then David, years later, after he had to flee and was in exile, uh, he got Michael back as his wife. But he had some other wives as well. But so she's the wife of David, the first wife. But she's the daughter of Saul. And her beef here with David is that you don't act like my dad. Well, that's a good thing if your dad is Saul, believe me. She was used to Saul's way of being king. Saul's way of being king is, you can see it summarized in the episode with David and Goliath. Israel's army is lined up. Philistines are lined up. Every day, Goliath comes out and he says, I'll take on your champion. Let's go. Let's get it on. And every day, Saul sat there on his throne, even though he was the tallest, uh, most handsome man in all of Israel, with a lot of skill in battle. Why? I don't think it's just because he was afraid. I think it's because he thinks he was the king. Hey, I'm the king. Kings don't go out and fight nine-foot, nine-inch giants. That's what people under kings do. And if you look at some of the way Saul lived, he had his own, you know, guys that followed him around and he taxed the people. I mean, he was into being king for the sake of being king. And this is what Michael learned growing up under Saul in his household, and now she's married to the great king of Israel, David. I mean, the, you know, and she despises the fact that he doesn't invest himself totally in that position the way that her father did, even though she knew what a disaster her father was. And so she's walking in pride, and she says, basically all she's saying here, a lot of people think, you know, that David did something shameful. It was only shameful to Michael. Her thing was that the king never takes off his kingly garments. I mean, you've earned it. You're the king. And for you to act like a common priest, it's beneath you and it embarrasses me. By the way, if you want a way of measuring whether or not you're really worshiping the Lord with humility, look and see if you're a blessing in your home when no one else is looking but your family. Because David, after all of this big thing that happened out in public, the scripture says he returned to bless his household. He wanted to make sure that things were uh, good at home. And so Michael is going to get an earful here in a minute. Uh, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house. In other words, Michael, your father wasn't a good king. He wasn't God's king. He chose me to appoint me ruler over the people of the, Lord of, Israel, uh, of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. In the earlier attempt to transport the ark, David had forgotten what kind of king he was supposed to be. He needed to be humble in his own sight in order to be the kind of shepherd king God had called him to be. He needed to be like his own future descendant, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in every way humbled himself, coming into the world as a man and humbling himself as a servant and further as uh, one who died on the cross for us. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, Michael, she remained the wife of the king. She was his first wife, and so she had certain bragging rights. I'm sure she went to all the state functions Outwardly, she was able to walk through life with this position, but in her womb and in her life, there was barrenness and emptiness representing the life of pride as opposed to one clothed with humility. Michael might be a better example for us than Uzzah, 
With Uzzah, God shows us that he was displeased with this whole idea, this whole prideful procession. In Michael, we see what can happen if we're walking in pride and we don't humble ourselves. God doesn't kill us, but our life isn't fruitful for the Lord. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. It's just there's not a fruitfulness to our life. We're just kind of going through life. Our effort surrounding but obscuring the presence of God can look very impressive. And that's why we always need to look deeper, first in our own lives and then in the lives of others. We want to find real humility that speaks of what Jesus would do. In the end, it doesn't really matter if you sing hymns or choruses. It's a ridiculous debate. It doesn't matter if you ban instruments or utilize every instrument under the sun. It doesn't matter if you dance or if you discourage dancing. All of those things are cultural, they are generational, and they're merely matters of style in a particular place at a particular time. The debate, for example, I don't want to get deep into it, but the debate between choruses and hymns, it's generational, mostly. Uh, For the most part, and this is a, a generalization, younger people like worship choruses played on guitar. Older people like hymns because that's what they grew up with, played on piano or organ. They're both wonderful. They're both fantastic. You can't say that one is better than the other. It it cracks me up reading these articles about how hymns are filled with doctrine and therefore they're better. Not all. Some hymns are filled with bad doctrine, for example, and how choruses are always repetitious. So what? All the angels, uh, as far as I can tell, the angels around the throne of God, all they do all day is say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is... Hey, would you guys stop that repetition, please? Can't you sing oh, great thou, How Great Thou Art or something? Can't you bust out with a hymn? And so, I don't want to make fun of anybody. I, I, it doesn't matter. People say, well, why do you guys do that? You know why? Because I got saved. Most of us, a lot of us in the Calvary Chapel movement, we got saved. We were stoners and rockers and stuff, and you like guitars. I'm not shy about it. It's not, it's not some super spiritual thing. It's generational. It's cultural. Same thing with dancing. So all of that, it's a dead argument. It depends on where you are, when you are, who you are, as to whether you're, you know, what you're going to do about that. What matters in any situation, what are you wearing? Our default clothing is pride. And unfortunately, we can be clothed with it even when our motives are absolutely sincere. Better to clothe ourselves with humility, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And so if there's something in your life in which you feel worshiping God isn't quite working for you, then we would suggest you get back to the basics. Do the simple things God instructs, realizing that the results may not always be immediate, but they will be eternal. Let's pray.